John 19 in your Bibles, please. John 19. Last week we looked at John 19, verses 1 through 24, which describes the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we did so, it probably became apparent to you fairly quickly that we did not spend all that much time actually focused upon the event that we would commonly call the crucifixion, all of the details surrounding the event. And we didn't focus on it, as I mentioned last week, because as we look in the text of John, John doesn't actually focus upon the details of the event very much. And as we think about that, I believe there's two possible reasons why that is the case. Number one, I do not believe that the epistle of John is meant to be read to the exclusion of the other Gospels. The other three, which we commonly call the synoptic Gospels, are far more uniform and focus far more upon the history of Jesus' ministry in a comprehensive fashion. John's epistle uses some of the historical events, but completely focuses upon those elements and circumstances that reveal this dichotomy, which we've talked about the whole time, between light and darkness, between belief and unbelief. To that end, John perhaps assumes the details of the resurrection or the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ could be learned more um, thoroughly from one of the other inspired histories. The second reason, though, is what I mentioned last week. The events surrounding the crucifixion, while vitally important to the Christian faith in many ways, are not as vital to this message of belief that John is expressing. Now, even as I say that, I want to brand myself as some uh, degree of heretic, so let me explain. The event that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is of vital importance to one's belief. Vital importance to one's salvation. For one must understand well that Jesus had to die that his death paid for our sins, and by extension of his death, he rose again from the grave. But the specific elements surrounding his crucifixion, the trials, the words said, the interaction with the other, the other prisoners, these are not what brings about belief. And John emphasizes the belief elements of the event to the exclusion of the details. In many ways, in fact, it is the omission of these details that help us better understand the author's overall purpose to the book. If John truly was present at the crucifixion, as he states in the scriptures, then he had a great deal more information about the event at hand than what he is telling. He could better state what happened on that day, perhaps, than Matthew, Mark, or even Luke could. But those things don't fit his purpose, so he left them out. Now, that being said, last week's sermon, though I feel it was expositionally very accurate, left a bit of a void in me that needed to be filled. You know, it's hard to think that we have come this far in the life of Christ, all the way through the book of John, over a year's worth of sermons, and not consider closely the contradiction of sinners, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So this sermon will be a bit different from others. Some of you may like it more than my normal formula. It won't stick as much to the text. It doesn't have explicit points, but we'll learn, we'll remember, and then we will certainly apply at the end as well. So we'll be back in John 19, 1 through 24, just as we were last week. But we'll take a closer look at a couple of phrases and we'll jump off from there. Springboard, if you will. In verse 16, we see these words. 
Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. We read in John 19, 1 and 2 the account of the soldiers mocking and torturing Jesus. In John, these events happened just prior to Jesus being delivered to be crucified. In the other Gospels, however, these events happen after Jesus is delivered to be crucified. Now, this should not cause us any great anxiety. We're not looking at a tremendous contradiction in the Scriptures. It simply means that John had a different idea of when Jesus was delivered unto crucifixion. We believe that all Scriptures are inspired by God, are, are perfect, are preserved, are God-breathed. Uh, that we have them in our own language and particularly accurately rendered in the King James Version of the Bible with the underlying Greek textus receptus. However, that doesn't mean that each of these authors didn't have their own personality. Inspiration was not automation. God was not transcribing through the authors. The authors took their own culture, their own understanding, and their own intent, and the Holy Spirit used their intent and their culture and their knowledge and their understanding and divinely thus inspired the scriptures through them. And so John had determined that Jesus Christ was delivered up for crucifixion following his scourging, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke had determined that Jesus Christ was delivered up for crucifixion prior to his scourging. John told us that a crown of thorns was placed upon his head and that a robe was put upon his back that these soldiers cried, Hail, King of the Jews, and smote him with their hands. Matthew and Mark add some detail. Jesus was taken into the hall called the Praetorium. This would have been a hall that connected Herod's palace and judgment chamber. It is perhaps the same place where Peter warmed himself by the, the fire while the trial commenced within. The whole band of soldiers, it would seem, had been called to witness the torture of this innocent man. They stripped Jesus of his cloak and they placed upon him a purple robe. Purple was the color of royalty, was the color of dignity, of honor, and of praise. This particular robe, if we understand the Greek word properly, would have been one worn by a military leader, probably by the leader of the group that was mocking and beating Jesus. Matthew and Mark tell us they placed that crown of thorns upon his head and then they mocked him. They mocked Jesus as king. They scoffed his authority. They sarcastically cried out, Hail, king of the Jews, while raining down vicious blows. John tells us they smote Jesus with their hands. Matthew and Mark tell us that they did the same and cried out, Who hit you? Prophesy unto us. Who was it that hit you? But also that the one who put the crown of thorns upon Jesus' head had a staff in his hand. And periodically this man would hit Jesus on the head with that rod every time, digging those thorns deeper into the skull of Jesus. These men spit on Jesus, declaring their utter disgust at his claims of authority. Imagine, the man who calmed the seas and winds with his voice. The man who, through the power of his word, raised Lazarus from the dead, multiplied the loaves and the fishes, called out the demons, called legion from the demoniac of Gadara. And this man with such authority and such power was spit upon, was mocked for that same authority. I remind you of the words of Isaiah speaking in Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. But may I take you a few verses farther? 
Isaiah 53.10 says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord that Jesus Christ was beaten, that he was scourged. You say, how is that possible? Because by accepting this, by being wounded for our transgressions, by being bruised, crushed for our iniquities, by the chastisement of our peace being placed upon him, Jesus Christ was accomplishing the very deepest will of the Father. Because with his stripes we are healed. Those unjust blows that rained down upon Jesus, each stripe that landed upon the innocent Lamb of God was endured with willing submission by Jesus Christ for your sin and for mine. For your sins and for mine. Look at verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went forth. Matthew 27, verses 31 through 34 tell us that following the beating, they took the robe off of him and they put his clothes back on and they led Jesus away to be crucified. The book of John, as well as history, tells us that criminals were responsible to bear their own cross, to bear their own shame, to carry up to the mount of crucifixion their own instrument of death. And Jesus did bear his own cross. Yet it would seem at some point that this burden was too much for him. John does not explicitly tell us, but the other Gospels tell us that at some point, now the text never mentions Jesus falling under the weight of the cross, though perhaps we envision this in our minds due to popular culture, but at some point along the journey, Roman soldiers compelled a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross the rest of the way. We don't know why. Luke 23 tells us that this death procession was followed by a great company of people. And Luke specifically mentions a company of women who followed Jesus Christ lamenting his torture and his death. Through that we're reminded that not everyone was pleased that Jesus Christ was on his way to die. Not everyone was pleased at the scourging and the torture which he bore. But Luke 23 tells us that Jesus, at some point along their journey, turned to these women and said something. He said this in Luke 23, verses 28 through 31. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paths which never gave suck. They shall, then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Jesus describes in these words the same event he describes in Matthew 24, events surrounding the tribulation and second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells these women not to weep for him, but rather for their own nation, because they have in this act alone rejected their Messiah, and therefore set in motion events which would culminate with seven years of terrible tribulation in order to chasten Israel back to God. Had they accepted their Messiah, perhaps they could have avoided this chastening, but their reje rejection had sealed their fate. They will now face the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation of those days. Look with me in John 19 and verse 18. Where they crucified him and two others with him, on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. Having led Jesus Christ to Golgotha, 
the Hebrew word meaning place of the skull, they put him on the cross. In the King James Version, Luke 23:33 calls this place Calvary. In the Hebrew, the word is Golgotha. In the Greek, the word is Kranion, the word for skull. In the Latin, it was known as Calvaria, the place of the skull. Thus, we see that the King James translators, they used the Latin name for its designation in Luke 23 as opposed to the Greek name. If you were to look in Luke 23 at the Greek, you would see the word Kranion. You would not see the word Calvaria. So this is not a translation. This is a bit of an interpretation or an interpolation of the text. Why did the King James Version do this? You know, they do this in the book of Acts as well. When you get to the city of Ephesus, you'll find that uh, the events are surrounding a temple known in the King James Version as the Temple of Diana. However, in the Greek, the goddess Diana, Diana was a Roman god, the, the goddess Diana was called Artemis in the Greek. So if you were to look in, your, in, in the, the Greek, you would not see the word Diana, you would see the, the name Artemis. But the King James Version uses the word Diana. Why, does, why do they do this? Well, I have a theory. I can't know for sure. During the time that Jesus Christ was crucified and during the time of the book of Acts, the world was under Roman control. Latin was the dominant language of the day. Latin was the language of Rome. Now, Greek, Koine Greek was the common man's language. That was the language that the entire empire would have known. That's why the Bible was written in it, the New Testament at least. But Latin was the language of Rome. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, this inscription was in all three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so that everyone would know what the crimes were of these men. And so most likely the King James readers would have, well, excuse me, the King James translators would have put in the Latin name because they understood at the time that Latin was indeed the language of Rome. And that though in Ephesus, certainly the common man would have called it the Temple of Artemis, the Roman Empire would have called it the Temple of Diana. Certainly, that though the Hebrews called this place the place of the skull Golgotha, and the Greeks called this place the place of the skull Kranion, yet the name for it was probably in Latin. The Romans had probably given it its name, and so the official name of the hill was probably Calvaria. And that is most likely why the King James Version did it. Now, this is a, a, a stark contrast to what the King James normally does. The King James is a word-for-word -word formal translation, formal equivalence. And so, generally speaking, they don't interpolate. They do here. They do in a few other places. Take that for what it's worth. Having been taken to Golgotha, they crucified him between two thieves. As we refocus on Jesus Christ, I didn't want to take your mind too far off of Jesus Christ, but I did uh, stand to be mentioned. Many things transpired while Jesus Christ was on the cross, some of which we will cover next week as we continue in John 19. Luke 23 tells us that having been placed on the cross, Jesus cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Matthew 27 tells us that many walked by and reviled him and mocked him, saying that you said that the temple would be destroyed and in three days you would rise it up again, and yet you cannot save yourself. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him. 
He saved others, but can he not save himself? Even the criminals on either side reviled him, men hanging on the cross just as he reviled him for his own righteousness. Until one of these thieves repented, and Luke 23 tells us afterwards, Jesus Christ told him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Next week we will pick up here, considering Jesus' final moments and even the events following his death on the cross, but I wanted us to slow down today and take a little bit of time to consider this narrative. And as we do so, I wanted us to do so for some important reasons. As I mentioned, John didn't mention most of this in his gospel, and that because these details could be found elsewhere. But we aren't objective readers here, are we? We aren't just here as passive academic students of an ancient text. We are direct beneficiaries of the events of that day some 2,000 years ago. Isaiah 53 states clearly that when Jesus bore those lashings and those blows and that pain and that torture, he bore them for you and for me. And as Jesus made his way up the Mount of Crucifixion, his grief rested upon the nation of Israel who had rejected his offer and his gift. As he was about to be slain to pay the debt for their sins, a debt which they could never pay, as they spurned his gift and mocked his name, choosing rather to assert themselves as gods of their own destiny. His words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in these words we see the heart of God for the men of this world. It's a heart that calls sinners to repentance. God did not die for good people. God died for sinners. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians 1.21 and 22 says, And you, who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. As Jesus bore the pain, bore the cross, bore the shame, in a manner of speaking, he was thinking of you. He saw you in all of your sin and loved you enough to bear your load. He knew you couldn't pay the, pay the debt, and He loved you enough to pay it for you. He knew you could never accomplish the expectations of God upon you, so He accomplished it for you. And that is why we take time to remember. For though the message of John is that of light and of darkness, the gospel that manifests that light shines all that much brighter when we consider the details of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And for those of us who are believers in this room, which is most, perhaps those under the sound of my voice who are believers, may I encourage you. Jesus Christ died for sinners. You are now sanctified in Christ, born again. But there are thousands, millions, surrounding you who have never heard who have never heard the gospel, who do not understand that Jesus Christ died for them, who cannot reflect with fond, loving belief and understanding at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What are you doing to tell them? What are you doing to convince them? What are you doing to make the gospel plain? We call it the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
Why is it so precious? Is it precious just because he covered your sin? No. It's precious because he covered all sin. And there are so many out there whose sins are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, but who have not had it applied to their account personally because they've never heard. May I encourage you as we leave this evening, tell them.